our sermon, we'll be reading from the Gospel of Mark, from chapter 8, verse 27, to, verse, uh, to chapter 9, verse 1. Allow me to read that for us. It says, And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others say one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever will save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Good morning. My name is Bill Smith. I'm one of the pastors here at Renewal Mainline. And as you figured out by now, I'm obviously not in the room with you all in person today, and I'm very sorry not to be. But it is my continued desire, and it's the desire of the session that we would care well for us as a congregation as we continue to navigate the COVID outbreaks in our area. And so we felt that it was best for me not to be in the room with everyone else today. Here's the story behind that. Several weeks ago, I caught a cold. I'm not entirely sure I know how, since I work from home, I do everything in my office or over Zoom, I mask when I'm in public, but I got a cold. It wasn't too bad, lasted about a week. I think I ended up passing it along to someone in my family because they had the same kind of symptoms I did. They had plans to go out of state to visit some of our relatives. I got a COVID test as a precaution and came back with a positive result. Now, just as an aside, I'm really, really hoping that this does not become like one of the new Smith family Christmas traditions. For those of you who remember, we did this last year. Apparently we've done it again this year. I would really, really like it if we could stop doing this. We've now had this positive test in our family and based on that test, the rest of us then waited the five to seven days that you're supposed to, and then we got tested. We're negative at this point. No one has had any more symptoms for which we're all very grateful, but we're still on that edge of the 10 day waiting period. We could be back out in public, but we thought the wiser course would be for us to just wait an additional week and then join everybody else next Sunday. Now, let me take this then as an opportunity to say just a few words about how we handle meetings together as a church in this time of COVID. Let me remind us, 
we meet in a really, really large building. It's very well ventilated. We space the rows six feet from each other, work to separate family units, and we require masks indoors. We've done that ever since we came back together. We ask people when they come, if there's anything else that we could do that would make them feel more comfortable, things, things that would actually make a difference. And just to remind all of us, if you or your child has flu or COVID-like symptoms, we still have the stream and we ask that you would please worship from home during that time. In that sense, we have restarted our meetings with standards that are above the guidelines for our area, and we've kept those standards up above them. We're gonna to continue to monitor what's going on in the larger world, and we will continue to ask you to abide by our in-person guidelines so that we can do two things. And we really want both of these things to be in all of our minds. First, we wanna stay safe ourselves. That's important to keep ourselves and our families safe. But if that's the only thing that you're thinking about, you've missed something essential about the faith. And that's secondly, that we wanna make sure that other people stay safe so that we can guard each other's health because this is just an aspect of loving our neighbor as ourselves. And it's an, an important indicator of how deeply the gospel has penetrated into our own lives, that we would care for someone else's health just as deeply as we do our own. That we would think about someone else's health with the same level of concern that we think about our own. Now, this is obviously not the last time that we're gonna have this conversation. COVID really does look like it's going to be here for the long term. I know some of you don't wanna hear that, and I'm not being cavalier about it, but I suspect that we're gonna keep having these conversations. And so this morning, I wanted one more time to reaffirm Renewal's commitment to worship together as safely as we possibly can. Because as I in the session have said a number of times, it really is important that we do worship together. It really is true that the Lord is among us and that we are with him in a way that's different when we're together than when we're off by ourselves. We are a body because by joining each of us to himself, Jesus has then also joined each of us to each other. We really are part of each other. And so we want to make the experience of worshiping together available to as many people as we possibly can. That's essential for us, for the spiritual health of our community. And it's essential that we do that safely. And so now, just like last year, I'm going to ask you to take everything that I've said so far, and I want you to put it in a little box. And I'm going to ask you to take and put that box off to the side shelf somewhere. You can open it up and pull things out later this afternoon. But I want you to put it there because right now there are more important things that we have to focus on than me and my health and my family's health. We're diving back into the book of Mark this morning. And as I said at the congregational meeting, we've come to a very important part of the book. It's not only important for what took place between Jesus and the disciples, but it's important for us as a church 2,000 years later. Peter has just spoken up for all of the disciples in verse 29, and he's acknowledged publicly that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Holy One sent by God to free Israel from all of our enemies. He's the one that has been promised by God going all the way back into the Garden of Eden. Jesus hears that declaration, and he agrees. He is the Messiah. And in these next two chapters, he unpacks three different times what that means. And he unpacks it, verse 32, plainly. 
There's no confusion as to what he was saying. The disciples understood him plainly. Jesus unpacks what it means for him to be the Messiah three different times. And three different times, the disciples completely miss it. They understand what he's saying, but their response shows that they're just not on board with him. It shows that they have their own agenda, even in the face of what he has just said plainly. And that has to sober you and me this morning. These 12 guys have been with him for months, maybe even a couple of years at this point. They've seen his miracles. They've heard his teaching. They've asked him questions. And they have no idea why he's here. No idea what he's here to do. And that tells you how easy it is for us as a church to miss it also. It reminds us that God's people in every age and every place have always struggled to keep in step with who God is and what he's doing. Go back, study Israel's apostasy throughout the Old Testament, or work your way through church history and study how many times whole sections of the church have just gone off the rails, how they've created theology. That has nothing to, to do with God. How they've given themselves to activity that has nothing to do with what God's doing. Study those things. And you realize that they've been true over and over and over, which means that humility demands this morning that we say and believe that this could be true of us too. These next few weeks are going to underline just how easy it is for us to be out of step with Christ. And they show how intentional we have to be in order to stay in step with him, in order to be his disciples. If it's this easy to miss what Jesus is doing, we need to regularly examine ourselves. We need to regularly repent, to repent of having lived counter to what Jesus says so plainly. We have to be super intentional to make sure that we're following him and not something else. Now, thankfully, we don't do that work on our own. Because we're also going to see that each time that the disciples fail to be on board with Jesus, that Jesus then teaches them about what discipleship means, about what it means to follow him, which is exactly what you and I need as well. So then, for the sake of being his disciples, followers of this Messiah, we have to see three things from today's passage. First, we have to see that there are two possible Messiahs that people have in view. Second, that there are two ways of life based on those two messiahs. And third, that there are two outcomes based on those two ways of life. We have to see that there are two messiahs, two ways of life, and two outcomes. First, there are two messiahs. Notice in this passage that there is Jesus's self-knowledge. There's his awareness of who he is and what he's come to do. Verse 31, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days rise again, there's Jesus's view of what the Messiah is here for. That's one view. And then there's Peter's view, or more accurately, the disciples' view. See, when Jesus rebukes Peter, verse 33, it's after he turns and sees the disciples. And the implication is that they're all on board with Peter, not with Jesus. Peter's the spokesman. He's speaking for them. So there's Jesus's view, and then there's their view. That the, and those views are very different. So different that Peter rebukes Jesus. 
Now, rebuke is a very strong word in the book of Mark. So far, it's been used when Jesus rebukes demons in chapters one and three, or when in chapter four, he rebukes that crazy storm that threatened to kill them on the Sea of Galilee, the storm that was keeping him from advancing his mission. In other words, when Peter rebukes Jesus, he's not being just a little strong here. He's calling Jesus out. He's telling him, you've completely missed it. Jesus, what you just said is evil. It's demonic. It's set against God. It, it's, it's against all that God stands for. It's against all that God is doing. Your conception of the Messiah, Jesus, could not be more wrong. In other words, Peter has not come to Jesus as a blank slate. None of us do. He came with a specific idea in mind of what he needed, of what his society needed, to be saved from. So when he said, you are the Messiah, he's already taken and filled that word with a certain content. And it's not until Jesus defines the Messiah in a completely different way that Peter realizes how far apart he and Jesus really are. And it's not only Peter. But up until that moment when Jesus said what would happen to him, no one in Israelite society had equated the Messiah with suffering, with being rejected, with being killed. Yes, there are passages in the Old Testament that talked about a suffering servant, but no one at that time connected those passages with the hope of a Messiah. And so Peter, the disciples, everyone was completely surprised that Jesus expected suffering, rejection, and death that Jesus thought that that was normal for the Messiah. And it's more than that he just expected it. It's more than that, it, you know, it, it might happen along the way. He said, verse 31, that he must suffer. Must, that it's not an option, that he must suffer, must be rejected, must be killed, and must rise three days later. Jesus said he must do all that 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 was why he was here. But since no one had connected God's rescue plan with the path of suffering, humiliation, and death that Jesus laid out, Peter thought this was heresy that just needed to be stamped out. The religious and the social expectations of his day led him to expect a completely different kind of Messiah, one who used his power to overcome all obstacles, not suffer under someone else's power, one who was embraced by the leadership, not rejected, one whose life ended in triumph, not in death. And so he interpreted Jesus in light of his expectations, and he was utterly blindsided when it came to realizing who Jesus is. When it came to realize that Jesus, following God's way of thinking, expects that suffering, powerlessness, is the only way to destroy what Satan has built. That there is no way to destroy evil unless he suffers, is rejected, and is killed. Now, why is that? Why must he? God is stronger than Satan. Why not just use that power to crush Satan, do away with everything that Satan's ruined? Why doesn't God use his power to overcome the power of evil? It's because there's a cost involved, a cost to setting things right that evil has set wrong. There's a cost for what evil has ruined. 
let's think about it this way. And, and here I am shamelessly copying Tim Keller with this example. But if I were to come over to your home and I'm in your living room and I happen to break a $200 lamp, there's now a cost involved that someone has to pay. There are a couple options for covering that cost. Either one, I pay for it. I pay $200 to replace your lamp so that your living room is like it was before I got there. Or two, you could decide not to replace it, which means that you are now going to live with $200 less light than you used to have. In that sense, you're now bearing the cost. You're not out any money, but you are out a certain amount of light and your living room is not what it was. It's not restored. Or third, you decide to replace the lamp. Effectively, you forgive me. You take on yourself the burden of paying the $200 that I should have paid so that your living room goes back to being what it was. Once something is broken, someone has to pay in some way. And if you think about it, the cost is even more than the $200. It's more than something that you could attach a dollar amount to. See, now there's the cleanup cost of what I ruined. There's the time and the energy that it takes to straighten out the mess. There's the inconvenience cost of getting it replaced, of searching for a replacement. And there's the relational cost of how you feel now having to deal with someone who breaks your things. There's also the embarrassment cost, I feel, of having broken your things. Those intangible costs often will add up to even more than the physical cost. See, it's conceivable that you can replace a physical lamp so that the living room comes back to what it looked like before. But how will you get back the time and the energy, the physical energy, the emotional energy, so that you and I are back to where we were before? How long will it take us to get back to where we were? Can we even get back to that place? There's a huge cost, often ongoing, that happens every time brokenness enters our lives. Now take that analogy and transfer it to the realm of morality, to, the area, to dealing with sin, to dealing with breaking what God has said is good and right. And you realize that the same principle holds true here. Whether you sin intentionally or it's the equivalent of you just being morally clumsy, in either case, when you sin, when you break something morally, someone has to pay. The difference is that when you sin against an infinite God, you've now broken more than you can ever pay for, even if he gives you eternity to do so. And so God now has a choice. Either he can take his great power and use it to make you pay for what you've done, or he pays himself. If he makes you pay, you'll never be free. Never be free to have a friendship with him. You can't pay off an infinite cost, even with an infinite amount of time. So if God views the problem of evil simply through the lens of power, that it's a problem he can overcome by asserting his power over those with less power who have broken his world, he will pass on that cost to you and stick you with a bill that you can never pay. And here's the glory of God. He doesn't do that for his people. When Jesus says he must, 
He means that the only way to restore this world and to restore you in it is that he must pay for what you owe, that he must suffer, be rejected and killed in your place. Now, when Jesus said that plainly, Peter reacted. And Jesus responds, verse 34, by calling the crowd to himself along with the disciples. What he's about to say is for everyone, it's for you and me as well. He calls them to himself and he says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now, the progression of that whole interaction seems a little odd at first. Think about what just happened here. Jesus tells them, verse 31, what must happen to the Messiah. Peter takes him aside and rebukes him. And Jesus now thinks that the right response to being rebuked is to tell Peter and everyone else that Peter has to join Jesus on the death march, that Peter now has to carry his cross, that not only must the Messiah suffer, be rejected and died, but if you're going to follow him, then you have to as well. In other words, Jesus understands that Peter is rebuking him, not simply because he thinks that Jesus is wrong, but Peter doesn't want the kind of life that comes with this Messiah. Peter's already made the connection that if you're following a Messiah who must suffer, then you must suffer. That the kind of Messiah you have determines the kind of life that you're going to live. Peter understood that if point one, there are different kinds of messiahs, that there are at least two, that if there are two messiahs, then there are also, point two, two ways of life for those who follow the two messiahs. Jesus sums up these two ways of living by saying that you can either, verse 34, deny yourself and take up your cross. That would have been just a really clear picture in his day. See, when you were taking up your cross, carrying your cross, it was not a metaphor. It was not a nice metaphor for, yeah, you know, I, I have to put up with something difficult. Instead, it meant that you were literally carrying the crossbar, the beam that your hands would be nailed to as you were crucified. It meant that you had been judged as a criminal, that society considered you a threat, that they had condemned you to die, that the outcome of your life was already known. That's one way of life, the life that embraces being condemned in the eyes of this world and paying the consequences for that condemnation. The second way of living is completely different. It's verse 35, trying to save your life. Verse 36, trying to gain the whole world. Verse 38, being ashamed of Jesus and his words. That when there's a choice between being affirmed by people or affirmed by Jesus, you choose people. You choose to be affirmed by people because you'd rather be ashamed of Jesus than join him in his shame. That's what it means to save your life to try giving yourself the best life possible. It's the polar opposite of each thing Jesus says that he's all about as the Messiah. And so instead of embracing suffering, you use whatever power you have to avoid it. 
You don't buy into God's belief that he defeats power with weakness, but you think you defeat power with more power. That true justice is about asserting and demanding your rights. That it's about the power to force others to give what is owed to you. It's about making others pay. And so you embrace power, not suffering. And you embrace being honored in this world, recognized, held in high esteem, instead of embracing being rejected. You work to fit in, to save face, to not leave anyone wondering, what's wrong with you? What's wrong with the people that you hang out with? Why don't they think this way, act this way, like the rest of us? You don't want to be rejected, especially not by anyone that the rest of the world respects. And so you work hard to think the right way and do the right things. You embrace power, not suffering, being honored, not rejected. And you work to enjoy as much of this world as you possibly can instead of denying yourself. When Jesus says you have to deny yourself, he does not mean make yourself not have this thing over there that you'd really like. He says, don't make yourself the center of your own world. Don't live trying to get as much of what you want out of life for yourself. Live instead with a different orientation. One that verse 35 is oriented around Jesus and around the gospel. See, denying yourself is not about skipping a couple of things or experiences over the course of your lifetime. It's not like New Year's resolutions. Instead, it's about living your entire life for something other than what you can get out of it. Which is why trying to gain the world is the opposite of following Jesus. Gaining the world. Saving your life. That's a life that's dedicated to having as much as you possibly can right here, right now. It's an approach to life that Jesus calls you to deny. And if you think about it just a little bit, you realize that Jesus is talking to you and to me, to those of us who have gifts and talents that let us succeed in this world at this time. Gifts and talents that open the door to having so much of what the world holds out to enjoy, to having good careers, work that we like, jobs where we'll be recognized, appreciated, where we'll be promoted, paid well, paid so well that we can eat good food, have nice homes, go on great trips. This world holds out distractions for us that will keep us from being disciples, keep us from following Jesus. It holds distractions and it holds temptations, things that will look more appealing to us than what Jesus says about following him, things that we're going to want, things like being honored. That is such a trap for so many of us. What's the flip side of being honored? It's the fear of man, right? Think about the fear of man and you realize how much it controls so many of our lives, of how tuned in we are to what other people expect of us, of how hard we work to adapt ourselves to their expectations so that they'll think well of us, of how we feel pressured to be up to date on all the things that our peer group has watched or read online, of how we feel pressured to let them know that we've read and watched the right things, to know that we agree with them, 
And so we'll say little things in conversations to signal that we're thinking right. Or we feel the pressure to post things on social media because we sense other people watching us or we feel the pressure not to post certain things that we've thought because we know that we'll get in trouble for thinking those things. We care so much about our reputation in other people's eyes. Now, do you see the connection of how easy it is to go from wanting to be honored in other people's eyes to being ashamed of Jesus and his words? You and I live in a world that is not behind God's agenda, one that ridicules his beliefs and his ideas, that opposes his plan to defeat evil. That means by definition that you simply can't agree with everything that the people around you think and say and do. And yet I know the pressure to agree is enormous. I feel it to quietly give in a little bit here, a little bit there until your faith gets squeezed out of the public sphere of life into the private until being ashamed of Jesus and his words becomes a way of life. Jesus says he must be rejected. Follow him and you can't be respected. You can't be honored in his eyes and in this world's eyes at the same time. Instead, you have to choose. Now, that's always been true. But if I read our world correctly, I think that's becoming more true in our society. Not just for you and me individually, but for the church as a whole, and I mean capital C, church. This word of discipleship from Jesus is very timely for us in the U.S., and I think it's going to be very hard for us. But so also is Jesus's challenge of suffering. One of our societal idols is power, the power to assert our rights and to assert what is owed to us, the power to impose our perspective on others. And nowhere is power more concentrated in our country than in politics. And so every day you are indoctrinated, let's use the better word, discipled politically. You are discipled until you instinctively think in power and political terms, until the idea of suffering to remove evil doesn't even occur to you, to where you and I would be tempted to take Jesus aside and to rebuke him for saying something like he did. Think, give up your power voluntarily? Jesus, what are you talking about? Here's the real craziness. You and I do this to ourselves. We stay current with what's going on in Washington, DC, Harrisburg, California, Texas, other states. You and I do that until we know more about people that we've never met. You know more about senators, congressmen, congresswomen, presidents, vice president, governors. You know more about people that you've never met who argue in places that you've never been to. You know more about them, what they think, what they say, than you do about your next door neighbors, who Jesus has called you to love and to care for. You know more about them until you're aware of, so much aware of what's taking place politically that it feels more real to you, to me, than to what Jesus is doing in and through his church in your neighborhood and mine. These issues are in your face every day and they come with a special vengeance during election cycles 
And so as soon as one election is over, you're told to start thinking about the next one. This year is one of those cycles. You started to hear the drums of war beating months ago. My prayer for myself, my prayer for us as a church is that this year we will give ourselves to a life of discipleship that involves suffering, laying down our power for the sake of the gospel, rather than getting caught up in the frenzy of this next political cycle. When Jesus calls his followers to a life of self-denial, of rejection and suffering, he's talking to you and to me. And we need to be so careful here. He spoke plainly to the disciples, and they missed it. It'd be really easy for you and me to do that. It'd be easy for Renewal Mainline to do that. We live in the Philadelphia suburbs. We want to enjoy the things that our talents and hard work have opened the door to. We want to fit in with our friends, our neighbors, our coworkers. We want them to think that we are good, decent people. And we know what to do, and we know what to say to make them think that. We want our church to be respected. And we're really not interested in suffering. We don't talk about that. We'd much rather insulate ourselves from anything like that. Use whatever power we have to avoid anything unpleasant. The suburbs teach us to want to save our lives. And that's not possible if we follow Jesus. Our Messiah hung on a cross. And he told us to expect no less if we follow him. So how do we do that? How do we get the courage to go against the green when the green makes so much sense to us as a way of life? Point three, recognize that there are two outcomes to these two ways of life that come from following two different messiahs. First, let's think about the outcome of trying to save your life, to have honor, power, to gain the whole world. Take them one, one at a time. What happens if you live to be approved by others? It means that you are taking your worth and value and placing it in someone else's hands. That does two things. One, it makes you insecure because your acceptance is based on your performance, on you thinking the right things. Well, what if you think the wrong thing? and you don't know it. If you say it out loud, your reputation's gonna take a hit. Maybe not all the way to the bottom, but it won't be what it was. You won't be thought of as you were. So you live with some degree of nervousness that at some point you might get found out. Seeking honor in this world leaves you insecure, and two, it means that you have to keep changing what you believe. Public opinion is extremely fickle, very variable. Look at the history of ideas and philosophical fads that move across our country, and you realize it doesn't take many years for what was in to be out. When J.K. Rowling, the author of the Harry Potter series, can go from being the world's darling 20 years ago to a pariah now in some circles because of her beliefs about men and women, when you can see that happen, realize just how fast ideas change from what is accepted to what is despised. If you live to be honored by your society, you will have to give up your own thoughts and opinions. And you'll have to change your position so often you'll have no intellectual, you'll have no intellectual integrity, which means you'll really have no honor. 
you'll have lost your life, not saved it. Just like you will if you live by the logic of power. If power is your solution to problems, then you will never handle weaker people well. You'll crush them. But you also won't handle stronger people well. You'll either try to defeat them with your power or you'll suck up to them to get them on your side so that they then use their power for you. You also won't handle broken organizations and systems well. You'll be able to notice how they misuse power, how they crush others, but because you're operating under the same logic that might makes right, you'll inevitably replace old crushers with new crushers. You'll substitute one tyranny with another that someone else will try to replace after you. And you'll live this way with your friends, in your family, and at your workplace. You'll be a miserable human being to be around. You will have lost what makes you worthwhile as a person. If you try to save your life through power, you'll lose it. Just like you will if you try to gain the whole world. Because everything that you can get here will not last. And most of it will be taken away before you die. Sally and I lived with a wonderful man and his wife. He had been a dean in a well-respected college. But when we lived with them, he had begun dementing. And I would find him in his living room in the middle of the day, reading the same journal article. Over and over and over and over again, remembering none of it. But unable to find his life in anything else other than the career that he no longer had. Try finding your life in what you do, and you'll lose it long before you die. Same thing happens with everything else you could try to fill your life with. Work hard to, a mile up, to amass a pile of wealth, and you won't take it with you. But even before you die, it'll start to dwindle. Inflation will eat it. Market downturns will cut into it. You could try turning it into consumer gold, goods, buy things with it like gold or furniture or clothes or whatever. But what's going to happen there? Those things will immediately begin to decay. They'll go out of style. They'll wear out. Pour yourself into relationships. Try to find your life in them. Have the very, 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 very best ones that you can. And you'll discover that every one of those people will leave you. They'll move away, they'll sicken and die, or you will. In this world, every party ends. Every concert has a finale. Every wedding has a final dance. Every party has a last call. Try to save your life by gaining the world and you will lose it. Not just later, here and now. But Jesus says you'll also lose it later as well. That verse 36, you can have it all here, but the act of trying to have it all means by definition that you'll lose your soul, that you cannot choose status, reputation and wealth in this world and Jesus and the gospel. Jesus came into the world to save the world. That means that all of these things that the world values, the way that it values them, that's the problem. To live for what brings happiness, reputation, and life here, 
is to set yourself at odds with Jesus. These things numb the soul, but they don't feed it. They can't save it. Gain all of them. And you lose your soul in the process. Now, be really careful here because Jesus is not saying work hard to have people dislike you. He's not saying that. Be as obnoxious as possible so that they hate on you. He's not saying that. Turn down every opportunity to do well in this world. He's not saying that. He's saying that those unpleasant things, the path of the cross, come automatically, that they're part of the lifestyle that comes when you want him, when you follow him. He's saying, verse 35, that you are to live your life for his sake in the gospel, for the good news that God has come to rescue people from evil, that Jesus and his mission are to be the center of your life, that they are to drive the things that you think about, they're to drive the things that you do. And when he and the gospel are at the center of your life, then you can expect all these other things as well, being rejected, suffering, losing your life. So then why would you want that? What's your incentive? What's the outcome of that way of life? It's also twofold. There's a real benefit now, and there's one later. First, there's real benefit now. The only reason you would pursue this Messiah is because you've tasted how much he loves you. He gave up his own life to pay what you owed. So instead of prioritizing his rights and his interests above yours, making you pay, he put his rights and his interests to the side for your sake. Why? Because he loves you. Not because you agree with him or make his life easy or have lots of things to give him. He just plain loves you. And so you can now live knowing that you're loved knowing that you can never be unloved, knowing that you are loved more than anyone has ever loved you. What does that mean? You can now love others. You can now risk saying what you think someone needs to hear without being afraid of their opinion of you. Because even if they reject you, he never will. Or you can do what you think is best for someone else. You can put aside your rights and privileges and you can serve them without feeling belittled, without feeling less than they are, even if they demand that you feel that way. And you can do that because you will never give them more than Jesus has given you. You're never going to stoop lower to serve them than he has in order to serve you. Or you can hold your possessions and your positions loosely. What's it matter if someone takes them all from you? They're nice, but they're not worth nearly as much as the riches of being loved eternally by a God who gave up all that he had for you just because he wanted you. Live knowing that you are loved right now to this great an extent in a way that you can't lose and you're free, free to think, to speak, to act, without fear. Why would you choose the road of discipleship following this Messiah? Because no one has ever treated you like this. Not now, 
not later. But God will treat you well later also. God vindicates everyone who embraces his plan to restore this world. Everyone who chooses what he thinks is glorious over what this world thinks. When Jesus hung dying on the cross, it did not look glorious. It looked like Jesus gambled and lost. Looked like the things that this world prizes were where the real glory is. Until three days later, when he had to rise, when he did rise. That was the start of God vindicating his plan of showing the glory that this world can't see. God vindicated the Messiah, and if you follow this Messiah, embracing the same lifestyle he lived, you can expect him to vindicate you as well. You can expect, verse 38, that when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels, he will not be ashamed of you. So when you have a choice this week, and you will, a choice to say what will honor Christ or what other people will honor, a choice to accept suffering that advances the gospel or to use your power to keep from suffering. A choice to let go of anything that keeps you from following Jesus or to gain as much of the world as you possibly can. When you have that choice, choose Christ. Choose him each and every time. Because the way that you handle that moment tells you what kind of Messiah you follow. And it tells you what kind of glory you care about most. Lord Jesus, give us a passion for yourself. Give us a glimpse into the glory that you have brought. Show us how it is so much more rich, so much better than anything that this world has. Let us see you in your fullness. Let us see you uh, in the way that you really are. Draw us to you. And Lord, as you draw us to you, love us. Let us feel your love, sense that deep inside, melt our hearts, Lord, melt the hardness of our hearts that, that we pick up from our world. Give us passion for you that nothing in this world can ever take away from us. Lord Jesus, please do that. For the good of your people and for the glory of your name. In Jesus' name, amen.